If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. It's the last long weekend of the summer of 2022. Then it's back to class. Oh my, I feel a tummy ache coming on. Here's Scott Thompson. Cheer up, it's not the end of the world, boy. Come on. My goodness. Turn that frown upside down. Uh, good afternoon. It is 308. It is Hamilton today. Uh, I'm Scott Thompson. The rest of the crew here. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you, including Tom at the board. Also, uh, Dave Woodard in the newsroom watching the world spin. Uh, speaking of the world spin, we were uh, kind of watching for a rocket to leave it uh, earlier on in the week. And then that never happened uh, due to, uh, obviously, last-minute delay. Uh, something comes up, red flag, and... And um, as it is with space travel, it's all extremely experimental. And uh, the launch was scrubbed. On now for tomorrow to talk more about all of this. Elena Hyde is with us, Director. Ellen Carswell, Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University, and with us now. Elena, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, doing uh, doing good. Very much looking forward to tomorrow, uh, if it works. Um, it is, uh, I think, the last count, something like a 60% chance of clear weather. Um, and if that fails, there's another one shortly after. So we're, we're in an interesting waiting stage on this particular mission. So weather is going to play an option with this launch tomorrow. It could, it could uh, be a concern. Absolutely. And it's, it's a bit funny because, of course, in space launches, much like uh, the rest of uh, ground-based astronomy, weather matters a lot. Um, and this particular launch is, is definitely no different. Uh, we're hoping that they can get that two-hour window tomorrow, Saturday, which is around 2 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. And if that doesn't work, the next opportunity is uh, on Monday. So it becomes kind of a what is the, the safest possible time to go so other than the weather is that the only concern at this time pretty much they actually have said that the the issues that they were seeing with the electronics and with the system i believe there was a uh, a small um uh thermal issue that they were worried about but they think that that is all under control it's a part of what they call acceptable risks so, um, and this is an unmanned mission or uncrewed mission. Mm-hmm. So they they are trying to do something that has never been done before with this uh, with this SLS and Orion combo system. It's pretty interesting interesting stuff, but uh, you know because of the never having been done before element you don't want to risk it if you're not sure and i think that's really what happened on monday uh they just weren't sure and they didn't have time to do the checks they needed to be sure so now they're sure but there is some weather issues i've seen some cloud pictures coming out on twitter and instagram of the 
the rocket uh, sort of with clouds in the background. And that's that's not really what you want. You don't want any danger of storms when you're trying to hmm. launch your rocket. So they're looking for that clear window tomorrow. And if not tomorrow, then maybe Monday. So getting back to what um, postponed the launch initially, and obviously we're not rocket scientists, um, but for, for us in layperson's terms, was there a problem or did they just not have to check something and uh, then they went back and realized it was fine, or did they have to make some sort of alteration repair? Yes, there were some small repairs that were made. Um, it was something that might have hurt the launch a little bit. It wasn't a critical issue, though. So there, um, they do have. Uh, they did. They did make some some small repairs. So it's not like it was. Uh, right. You know for no reason at all <laughs> so how difficult is it to obviously haul this thing out there and um you know i understand it's not till towards the end it's loaded with fuel but how hard is it to start this and then stop it again yeah exactly well this this is the it is astonishingly difficult to get off of our planet um despite the fact that earth is a relatively small rocky planet without a lot of mass uh, the gravity here is plenty enough to keep us really quite well stuck to its surface um and this rocket to get off of the surface uh will require um, quite a lot of solid fuel. So it is um, a huge amount of effort to get ready for these launches. But at the same point, because these launch is you know quite a valuable entity, you really don't want to waste your chance. So it's still much less expensive than, for example, if your launch fails and you have to do a whole new one. All right, and as you mentioned, this is new design, new rocket, new stage, new uh, new era, I guess, as we head back to the moon en route to Mars. As you mentioned, no crew on this. Um, this is largely a dry run. What do we hope to learn from this? Yeah, this is a really proof-of-concept type of uh, rocket. And the fact that they've got this new space launch system, this is their SLS that you might have heard about, the space launch system, that's the part that's actually going to be sort of getting the Orion uh, up into um, on its way to the moon, so out of Earth. And that system was something that took quite a long time to develop. Um, and it's something that we didn't have before, right? So previously you had your old Artemis missions, um, or sorry, your old <laughs> Apollo missions, this is Artemis, going off to the moon. And we had um, different types of rockets burning different types of fuel. And now we have other companies coming up, SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, uh, Blue Origin, probably lots more by now. And this is NASA's kind of answer to this next generation of, of space travel. They're hoping that the SLS system will be durable and reliable and powerful enough to really power not just um, you know a trip to the moon, but regular trips to the moon, things that will set up the the lunar gateway or that um, they want to build a space station around the moon. I don't know if you've heard of that one, but it's, mm, it's yep. a pretty cool idea because of course, if you have a space station around Earth and a space station around the moon, it's a lot easier to go from space station to space station than it is to actually mm. get off of Earth. Uh, that's the that's the really really hard part. 
Yeah, um, so lots to lots to look forward to uh, with this new era for NASA. Dr. Elena Hyde, Director, Alan Carswell Observatory, Department of uh, Physics and, a- and Astronomy, York University. After a delay, NASA's new rocket, the Artemis One, scheduled to launch tomorrow. Fingers crossed. Elena, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. And clear skies, as they say. Yeah, enjoy your weekend. It'll be a fun one for you. Thanks so much. Bye. You know, I was. Um, we we've certainly heard um, and seen all the crap that's going on at airports and passport offices, and in how the feds have sort of been caught with their pants down here in regard to getting our country back up and running, especially the tourism industry. Um, but one thing it appeared that wasn't a problem was interest. People were eager to get out and about. So when I saw this, I was I, I was surprised that it's still having this much of an impact on our border cities uh and that being that um, the border cities uh specifically niagara falls are not seeing americans coming back so although everybody's doing things and 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 events and such are are uh are appearing full we're not getting americans coming back across the border and that's hurting towns that depend on that tourism dollar let's bring in mayor geo uh, jim uh, diodati of niagara falls and he is with us now jim thanks for the time i hope you're well I'm well. Thanks for having me, Scott. You know, this sort of gets overlooked in all of the recovery and all the other great stuff or things that we're talking about in a post-COVID world. How much of this is still an impact for you? Uh, what is the deal? Uh, do, do Canadians are showing up to Niagara Falls, but Americans are not. Is that accurate? Yeah, you're, you're bang on. That's exactly what it is. So anyone who says, oh, this might be tied to inflationary issues, that's nonsense because inflation affects Canada and the U.S. and the rest of the world. So Canadian tourism in Niagara Falls is back to pre-pandemic levels. So domestic tourism is alive and well, but international tourism is half of what it used to be pre-pandemic. And we know other destinations have fully recovered, but Canada is lagging behind. And we're hearing people say it's easier to get to Europe than come into Canada and by and large, the number one reason why we're suffering is a self-inflicted wound called called uh, ArriveCan. And ArriveCan has been very frustrating because we've been saying this since the beginning of the tourism season. We supported it in the beginning when the pandemic was at its height. The idea was to keep COVID out of the country. Well, for a long time, we've known 99% of spread is through the community. It's not across the border. So we said, please r- get rid of the red tape at the borders. We already have challenges where you know, we've got approximately 10 million vehicles crossing into our four crossings in Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls is the number one leisure destination in Canada with 20 million uh, visits a year and 40,000 people count on it to be successful to feed their families, to pay their mortgage, pay their rent. So we're very sensitive to tourism. And we know tourism is back with Canadians, but not with Americans. And as I say, Scott, the problem is the Arrive Can app. We're, we're very frustrated and we've been pleading with the federal government to remove this. It's not necessary. It's not keeping us safer, but it's definitely killing tourism. What is the federal government's reasoning for not removing this? They haven't given us one. They keep saying, you know, Minister Transport uh, Algebra, Algabra has said, you know, well, it's it makes things smoother and better. And we know that's completely false. That's not the truth. And you don't have to go any further than the CBSA experts on the bridge. And they're telling us it's complicating things, congesting the border, slowing down the the, the travel times. And I'll give you a perfect example, Scott. 
a family. And, and here's the other thing. I'll, I'll lay, lay it back for a second. The majority of people come into Canada through land border crossings. That's how the majority come. And they come, we call it the rubber tire market. They come in a vehicle. They drive here. And we're within about a day's drive of of 50% of the population of this continent. So we're within not that far away for people to get here. They wake up, they see it's a nice day, they throw yeah. the kids in the van, throw the kids in the van, they head to the border, we're going to Niagara Falls like we do every year. They get here and they're asked about their Arrive Can app, they don't know what they're talking about. Well, now they don't have they don't have roaming, they don't have access to Wi-Fi, they can't download it, it asks them questions they can't answer, like what's the address you'll be able to quarantine at they're like, we're leaving. We're not here for longer than the day. So they get frustrated, hours spent, wasted. And as they say, Scott, when you have a good experience, you tell your friend. When you have mm. a bad experience, you tell 10 people. And that's what the problem is now. Americans are being told and telling each other, avoid Canada. It's a mess. Uh, you know, you sort of answered my next question, Jim, and that was how many people, uh, you know, again, you're going on a vacation, you plan that ahead of time, you do all the work, you whatever, but how many people, um, you know, and you may not decide, or maybe you do, hey, let's go to Niagara Falls this afternoon, whatever, but even within a day's trip, as you said, and just say, hey, let's week, uh, this weekend going to be nice, let's go to Niagara Falls, uh, like that's a massive part of this American market we're talking about. It's not necessarily people planning trips like they're going to Disney. No, it's a very much a spontaneous thing. They check the weather channel. They make their decision that morning when they're having breakfast. That happens oftentimes. And and the other thing that's really frustrating, too, is you know, when you look at the numbers, I mentioned we get 20 million visits a year. Typically, 25% of the visits come from the U.S., and they represent 50% of the revenue, five zero. So mm. it's hugely impactful when you don't have Americans coming because they typically – they stay longer and they spend more. So that's having a devastating effect. After two years of being closed, we need help. We don't need these self-inflicted wounds caused by things like Arrive Can. We need our federal government to listen to us to please remove it. As they say, scrap the app. And if they're that in love with the app, if they really believe it's that good, and I don't know why, because nobody feels that way. And I'm talking to all the mayors across this country along the border, on both sides of the border, congressmen, MPs, MPPs, uh, senators, they're all on the same page. The business community, they're saying it's time to get rid of it. And if they won't do that, at the very least, make it voluntary. Let us choose. And if it's as great as they say, like the Nexus, we'll flock to it and we'll get it to save time. But the way it is right now, the mandatory use of ArriveCan at the borders, it's killing us in, in a $105 billion industry in this country. And how much do you think you're going to lose just from lack of American visitors this summer alone? Uh, because, again, you've, you've been fortunate enough to see a spike in things going up because people want to get out. But unfortunately, you're cut off at the border. How much is this going to affect this year's tourism season? Well, the number will be measured in billions of lost revenue. And and I know there's nothing that we could have done because of the pandemic and we understand yeah. and accept that. But this is self-inflicted. This is self self-sabotage. It goes against good customer service. And you know, one of the comments I said in Niagara Falls, we throw out the red carpet and we've got the federal counterparts putting up the red tape. And and I'll tell you take it a step further how it impacts residents along the border. I've been inundated with calls specifically from senior citizens. And I, this one gentleman stands out in my mind. He was 87-year-old gentleman, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm happy to show that I'm a Canadian and bring my passport. I'm proud to show I've been vaccinated. I even got my boosters. He goes, but I'm offended 
and I feel like I'm being discriminated against because I don't have a smartphone, I don't use a computer, and I'm intimidated. So as a result, mm. my wife and I feel trapped. We can't leave Canada. And and people like that are being hurt. There's a lot of people just like that, but boy, are they passionate and boy, are they upset about it. You know, you bring up a valid point, Jim, because we just came back from a trip this summer and going through airports and such. And that's what my wife and I said to us. It's like if you were a senior trying to negotiate this with some issues, boy, it w- or anybody with, with, with challenges, it would be very, very difficult. Um, one last uh, question. How concerned are you? Uh, and I read this somewhere in, in one of your comments that, that this is changing habits. People just, you know, hey, let's go to the falls today. They're just forgetting about that. It's changing habits. That's like a, it's like you got to remarket this. Well, and that's my concern because we spent many years and many millions of dollars marketing to the American visitors and people establish routines and habits. We're very ritualistic, us human beings. And unfortunately, people are like water. They take the path of least resistance. And in this case, people are now forming new habits and new traditions, new customs, and they're going to different destinations. They're avoiding and bypassing Canada. The sad thing is they love Canadians and they love Canada and they want to come here, but it's just not worth the hassle. So they're making a conscious decision not to come. So my bigger concern, as you say, Scott, is the long-term residual effect of people forming new habits and forgetting about us. That's very upsetting to a lot of people, myself included. And it's also upsetting to the seniors that feel that they just can't navigate the waters of the Arrive Can app. Uh, we think travel is up, and it is, except for Americans coming here because of the Arrive Can app. Jim Diodati with us, Mayor Niagara Falls, talking about the difficulties his town is experiencing. Jim, thanks for the time. Be well. Enjoy the Labor Day weekend. I will, Scott. You too. Thank you. All right. Um, obviously, uh, over the years, we've seen what's happened and how the attitudes have changed in and around, uh, especially specifically through the Me Too movement. Uh, we saw that in Hollywood. And many asked um, if we would start to see that in the music industry not too long ago. Obviously, uh, we are. We've seen uh, figures like Jacob Hogard of Headley uh, answer to allegations, charges of, uh, of misconduct and such. Now, Arcade Fire which uh, already facing disruption with singer Wynn Butler setting to pursue more uh, solo work after this tour. Now multiple allegations of sexual misconduct have been raised against him. Uh, consequently, fellow Canadian musician Feist has dropped out of the band's European tour. And to talk more about all of this and where it's going, Alan Cross, uh, host of history, host of the ongoing history of new music and is with us now. Alan, thank you for the time as always. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing okay, yes. So sex, drugs, and rock and roll, uh, is the tone changing in this industry? Uh, how significant is all of this to not only the industry but the band? Well, it's, it's slowly been changing. Um, one of the things that's... It's been very tough to reform attitudes in rock and in, in music in general simply because uh, this is an industry based on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. This is why people want to mm. get into this business. And this is uh, the people in the business live in a bubble. They're sometimes encouraged to, uh, you know, do weird behaviors, or at least these weird behaviors are tolerated. Um, And it's it's strange now that people will continue to do them, given the fact that we have cell phones with cameras, we have audio recordings, and we have all sorts of other things that can document bad behavior and make it visible to the entire world in a matter of seconds. So why anybody would want to even engage 
even try to engage, even think of engaging mm. in, in this kind of behavior is, 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 is beyond me. Um, and there is a reckoning. This reckoning has been due for, for quite some time. We've got to remember they are back in the 70s. A guy like uh, Jimmy uh, Page would go on tour with a 14-year-old and nobody batted an eye. I mean, there are all kinds mm. of allegations of uh, underage relationships with people like David Bowie, Mick Jagger, and so on. But that, you know, that was then. This is now, and we've evolved as a, as a species that you know we should not turn a blind eye or tolerate any of these sorts of things. So, does this continue, Alan? Even though there is this different attitude, or is this the past coming back to haunt people? I think it's a bit of both. Uh, the past is coming back to haunt people because if we look at the recent cases, it's all stuff that happened, you know, you know, starting. 2015 or earlier. The Wynn Butler thing is a little bit different because it's uh, slightly more recent. But a lot of this past behavior, uh, which at the time was either tolerated or people turned a blind eye to it, is, you know, people are emboldened. People who felt that they were wronged, they were assaulted, they were injured in some way, are, are now coming, you know, out of the shadows and saying, no, wait, this happened to me. This should not have happened to me. It scarred me. It hurt me. And I want something done about it. Now, that's the question. What do you do about it? If this is something that happened in the past, uh, there are, I mean, we're not dealing with statutes of limitations, but what is an appropriate punishment? What is the appropriate hmm. sentence? What is the appropriate way to go about receiving satisfaction and restitution? And that's something that is is pretty pretty complicated. I mean, let's look at back at Michael Jackson. And I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, yeah. You know, Michael Jackson was going to be completely marginalized and censured, but then we had this very long talk about separating the art from the artist. And Michael Jackson's fans were, you know, first of all, they they would defend him for having done anything wrong, uh, but then they. Um, said, no, 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 the, the music is still great, regardless of what the musician did, regardless of what the artist did uh, in, in when he wasn't making music. Hmm. So I, I'm, I'm confused. You know, um, do, is, is this trial by social media? Should uh, people, you know, actually step forward and bring charges? Uh, or is it going to be this sort of anonymous accusations from the sidelines and then we let the court of public opinion uh, look after everything. It's, it, I, I don't feel good about that. I, I, I feel very important. It's very important that people, you know, get, get, like I say, the restitution, but I, I'm not sure what the proper way is to get it. Who needs to fix this? Is this the corporate music world's um, problem to fix, or is this up to the individual? Hey, we're just hiring them. We're not. We're not uh, telling them. We're not dictating their character. No, I, I think it's up to everybody involved with the music industry. Uh, something just came out in Australia uh, earlier today. As a matter of fact, it's a scathing report about sexual discrimination and harassment and bad behavior in the Australian music scene. If, if you want to, want to look that up, it is just. Wow. So hmm. there are are people within the industry, whether they be artists or people involved in, in the business side of things, who recognize that the status quo cannot continue. This old time sex, drugs, rock and roll status quo cannot continue. 
and that reforms are needed. Um, I think you're going to hear a lot of follow from this Australian report that came out today because it is it's ugly. It's really ugly. Helen Cross with us, host of the ongoing history of new music, talking about Arcade Fire and the situation they find themselves in now. Alan, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great long weekend. You too. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We all know about Dundurn Castle, and if you haven't, go take a tour. A national historic site treasure right here in the Hammer. And these are the last days of the 2022 uh, tours for Dundurn's historic kitchen garden. Did you know that they had a tour of Dundurn Castle's historic kitchen garden? You do now, and you better get there soon because it's going to be over. Uh, Natalie Scola with us, garden demonstrator at Dundurn Castle, is with us and on now. Uh, Natalie, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me on. So many may not know about the history of this kitchen garden. Tell us, give us a little backstory here. Well, the kitchen garden was what was here originally at Dundurn Castle, and it's what our, all the food was grown to support uh, the family and the servants and any guests at Dundurn. Um, after it became a museum in the early 1900s, the garden was actually removed, and the garden was not restored until 2004. So the garden that we have here is um, similar um, to the original garden, they did a lot of archaeological work to see uh, original structures and the original layout. So we've made it as close as possible to uh, the McNabb original garden, and we use heirloom varieties of uh, produce and flowers that we grow for visitors to see how a garden would have looked like in the mid-1800s. So how big is this? Is it, is it the same size as the original? It's a little bit smaller. Um, the original garden was about two and a half acres. Uh, part of that garden ended up becoming the suburb behind Dundurn Castle. Uh, mm. So now it's just a little bit smaller, just over an acre or so. So what it's is in there? You talked, about, you, t- you talked about flowers, vegetables, whatever. Um, what is in there and what's different from what we may see today? Uh, we've got a lot of, of uh, vegetables, so things like tomatoes and peppers and greens and squashes. Uh, we have flowers of various types. Some flowers are for show, for cutting and drying. Some are medicinal or for uh, edible purposes. We also have berries and fruit trees. So you might see some more unusual varieties than you would see in a common garden. Uh, some unusual flowers, um, lots of things like uh, rhubarb, which um, some people might have in their gardens, but might, most people might just buy at the grocery store. We have uh, trees that are grown in a specific fashion called espalier, so flat along the fence to take advantage of the heat and the space. Hmm. There's just a lot of very cool plants that you might not see in a garden center or in your own backyard. And back in the day, um, not only rich people who lived in castles, but many people grew all of their own food or a lot of it. Absolutely. So we had a head gardener, his name was William Reed, and he was responsible for producing all the food in the garden. He had a team of gardeners who worked under him, and all the food that they were growing was being eaten and saved and preserved to get through the season up in the castle. So what do you do with the food now, the vegetables and such? Most of it goes up into the castle for our historic programming. So uh, our Mm -hmm. cooks in the historic kitchen are making amazing things like jam, jelly, preserves, all kinds of tasty things. Uh, We have a fantastic tomato um, chutney that they use some of our tomatoes to make. And then whatever is excess goes to Neighbor to Neighbor, which is a food bank uh, in Hamilton. What a great idea. How long have you been holding tours of this garden since it was uh, refurbished? 
Um, I'm not entirely sure how long the tours in general have been, but we start our tours every summer. Um, and that guided tours are available every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday throughout the summer in the garden. And this is a free service, I understand. And it is a free tour. So this is our last weekend for uh, guided, interpreted tours of the garden. You do not have to pay. They are free. But we, we do recommend, strongly recommend purchasing or not purchasing, registering your tickets in advance. And you can do that online. And what's this tour like? What sort of information? So you're going to learn about the importance of the garden. Um, you'll be taken through the parkland in front of Dunder Castle into the garden, and you'll see the highlights of what's growing, what's blooming, and learning a little bit about the different gardening techniques that we use to produce all this um, amazing food in the garden. And so when does this start up again in the spring? What's that process like for you and, and the staff? Uh, there's a lot of planning that happens over the winter. Uh, we rotate our beds, so we practice crop rotation, having the, the different crops move through a space for soil health and permaculture. So we plan out what vegetables and flowers we want to grow, um, and then we tailor to kind of what programs we want to offer, so all the new things that we can do that we haven't been able to offer in the last couple of years with COVID. So there'll be some new offerings as well next year. Um, lots of planning, lots of uh, drawing out things on maps, and then planning um, for larger projects as well if, you know, if any kind of infrastructure needs to be fixed. Um, and looking around if anything needs to be built or making some new beds. So is everything pretty much back to normal as far as, uh, you know, coming out of a global pandemic in, in the itinerary and the events and such that are happening in Dundurn Castle? Is it back to where it was? I think we're, we're definitely getting there. We uh, had a lot of work to do this spring, taking down a lot of weeds that kind of had taken over the garden. But the garden yeah. is looking absolutely fabulous now. We've put in a ton of work. Our summer team has been incredible. Uh, with our uh, gardeners and our summer students weeding really hard, getting the garden to look great. Uh, We did try adapting a little bit more of a modern technique for certain things uh, during COVID, but we're still keeping true to our Victorian roots. And who does the work? Who who keeps this? Who who does the upkeep? We've got a team of gardeners uh, who work uh, throughout the year. And then in the summer, we have a team of summer students who join us uh, to make the garden look beautiful. Great idea, Natalie. If people want to find out more, where do we go? You can check out the uh, Dundurn Castle website, and then beyond the tours, you're free to come to the garden every day from uh, Tuesdays through Sundays from 12 to 4, all the way up until Thanksgiving. There's interpretive signs, and you're welcome to ask the gardeners any questions you might have about the, uh, the historic kitchen garden or even your own garden at home. Natalie, oh, there you go. <laughs> go to Dundurn Garden and get some great tips. Uh, Natalie Scola with us, garden demonstrator at Dundurn Castle. Uh, in the last days of their historic kitchen garden, check it out before uh, it is gone, and you'll have to wait till next year. Natalie, thanks so much. Good luck with this. Thank you so much, Guy. I hope you have a wonderful day. We certainly know about the housing crisis. And, you know, again, I, I just find all of this absolutely astounding because I think a lot of this was predictable. And uh, I also, let me rephrase that. I think what I find astounding is the political response to this uh, issue. And the last provincial election we had, every single political party, whether it was the Green, whether it was the NDP, or whether it was Liberals, or whether it was Conservatives, all of a sudden we're going to start building some houses. We're going to start building some homes, which build has been a bad word in Ontario for decades, whether it's environmentalists stopping the urban sprawl or nimbyism inside the city limits. 
that doesn't want to put an apartment building on that parking lot. Uh, what it has ended up with is a high demand and a low supply, and that's where we are where we are. So many are looking for solutions, uh, including putting pressure on governments, whether it's federal or provincial, to try to ease or solve this problem. Uh, there was some chatter earlier on uh, from the feds in regard to renting to own. I'm not sure how this works, but uh, it can, and it could be a solution. Let's bring in Rachel Oliver of Clover Properties. This is a family-owned company that specializes in rent-to-own homes, and Rachel's with us now. Rachel, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm great, Scott. Talk about your business first and and how long this has been around. Uh, Give us a bit of backstory here. So uh, my husband and I decided that uh, back in uh, 2009, we really wanted to get into the world of real estate investing, but we didn't want to be landlords. We really wanted to invest with a purpose. And the purpose was to help other families overcome barriers to home ownership by creating a rent-to-own program and allowing them to uh, essentially apply. And through this rent-to-own process, they become mortgage-ready and ultimately become homeowners. And we've been doing this for 13 years and have helped over 600 families in Ontario so far. Uh, how does this work? How does Give us a, a basic uh, layperson's term of how this works. So rent-to-own is really a stepping stone uh, to become an owner by having your own mortgage. So this is for people who get turned down by the bank. So generally someone right. who has a pretty decent income, they've been saving um, some money for a down payment. So we ex- accept people with about 4 or 5% down and uh, tarnished credit, bruised credit, bankruptcy, uh, self-employed, all of that is completely acceptable because we give them the runway they need to fix those issues. So usually three or four years, they get support and time that they need. And the program is kind of 80% systemized and 20% customized for their circumstances. And the goal is really to help them build up a bigger down payment, help them repair their credit, and ultimately help them build up equity through this rent-to-own process. Uh, wow, this is there's a lot going on here. So this is uh, as much about building a house, reestablishing or or establishing a, a, uh, a credit rating, a, a, a good uh, credit in standing, I would guess. Absolutely. There's something holding people back. And oftentimes they've been saving, you know, faithfully for that 5%. And then they go to the bank and the bank says, ah, you know what, you have some debt, um, a car loan, maybe a student loan, and that is throwing out your ratios to qualify based on the lending criteria. So they think that all they have to do is go back to renting and try to save up on their own and fix their credit on their own. But meanwhile, in the background, the market is getting out of hand and they're going to get outpriced if they try to do this on their own. So this is for a specific uh, type of clientele who's having a hard time qualifying or getting a mortgage. Is this an idea for those that are having no problem getting their mortgage? They just can't afford a home. So this is the the big conundrum. Affordability is something rent to own doesn't actually solve. Yeah. So uh, that being said, let's not throw this out because it does help people who would normally not be able to even get into this game. Absolutely. So, you know, before I say it doesn't solve the affordability problem, I really should kind of backtrack and say what we do essentially is lock in buyers to buy the property at a rent to own price three or four years down the line. Now, we lock in that price today based on a very conservative appreciation of the market. So let's say 4% annual appreciation. In many markets across Ontario, Hamilton included, we're seeing double digit appreciation. 
So when they're exiting the rent to own program and they're paying a rent to own price once they get their own mortgage, they're actually buying the property well below market value. And that's yeah. really how we help them get ahead or how we help them lock in that affordability. How do you survive doing this as a company then? So our services are completely free. Our rental and process is free for home buyers. We get paid by private investors who are actually families just like us who step in to take on a mortgage for that property that a family wants to rent to own. And while that family is holding the mortgage, essentially they're waiting for the rent to owner to exit and buy that home at a predetermined price. And we set up all the contracts and we essentially keep the rent to own family on track to the finish line and we get paid by the investors to do that on their behalf. So um, you're buying the home out outright first then they're eventually buying it from you but obviously under a especially nowadays uh, market value because there is a set contract uh, involved. So you're I guess from your company standpoint you want to make uh, X number percent off each investment and then that's it. Is that how it works? So the, essentially, the private investor that's stepping in to take ownership of a property and help someone rent to own it is benefiting from the delta of what they buy the house for today and what they're right. going to sell for in the future. So, for example, in the Hamilton market, if they buy a property today for, let's say, 650000 then about three years later, they're going to be selling that house to the rent-to-own family for about seven fifty, seven seventy five. Right. And the delta is really why the investor is doing it, because they're making a profit from the future sale. But they have to wait three or four years to get there while this family rectifies their credit situation, accumulates a bigger down payment through the monthly rent to own payments and ultimately looks after the property in the process. Uh, it seems that your company would take a quite a risk with this. No, absolutely. There's no risk because we're dealing with homeowners who really are coming in with not just first and last month's rent, but they're putting in right. hard earned money, 4%, mm -hmm. 5% down payment. And that down payment is the security for us to want to step in and help these families. Uh, is this growing? Is this industry growing? Do you see a future here? Obviously you do. You've got a company here uh, with the current climate. What does it look like? Absolutely. There's definitely a lot of demand. I think one of the challenges that we're facing is that salaries and incomes just are not rising quickly enough um, to keep pace with where the real estate values are going in Ontario. So the, the higher income earners with blemished credit are absolutely a great fit. They don't have to wait and try to figure out things on their own. They can get in through the rent-to-own process. It's the people that are not making, you know, um, a management-level salary, for example, that are going to be um, looking for other solutions. And I'm not sure if the government policy is going to take that into account. Uh, that would be my next question. What can governments do to aid those that are especially, you know, trying to qualify, can't, or for some reason can't establish that line of credit? Is there anything they can do to help services like yours? Well, I'm really curious, just like you are, uh, Scott, because there's been so few details. There's been very little transparency. I, yeah. My biggest question is what happens to people if they don't have perfect credit? Are they going to be eligible for whatever rent-to-own plan the government has? And on the other side, I'm noticing that the government is funding development projects. They want to build some sort of units, and they're they're, uh, they're funding um, or or enabling more developers to build units at some sort of a discount. And will that discount be passed on to 
uh, buyers that are struggling on the affordability scale? That is a big question, I think, for all of us. So is the government getting into the same business you are? I feel that they, they may not be. I, I feel like mm-hmm. we're approaching rent-to-own from uh, very different lenses. I mean, our program yeah. is tried and true and tested and has gone through over 600 families. And we know what works. We know where the pitfalls are. And I feel that the government is using rent-to-own as a word, but they haven't fully disclosed how they approach the rent-to-own process. So I can't really say that they're getting into the same business, not just yet. Mm. Rachel Oliver with us, Clover Properties, family-owned company that specializes in rent-to-own homes, something the federal government was talking about earlier on in the week. Rachel, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. uh, Another fascinating story in the media, and it may change or put a different spin on the whole Lisa LaFlamme story. Um, It's fascinating that the only words we've really heard out of Lisa LaFlamme and CTV on any of these issues is that it was a business decision and they're moving on and that is it. There was something uh, from an anonymous source that was talking about hair color uh, when Lisa LaFlamme let her hair go gray because Belle or Laflamme has not spoke up on any of this. The rumor mill is going wild. This is about ageism. It's about sexism. It's about hair color. And these discussions should all be had. But I'm not sure that's at the center of what we're talking about today. And Bell Media, the owners of CTV, may have even more trouble uh, now that we're hearing more from Jamil Jivani, G- uh, who is suing Bell for uh, alleging he was wrong, uh, wrongfully let go because he did not, did not fit their stereotype for a black man. They were looking for someone to, well, who frankly was a little bit more left, and Jamil is a conservative. I think this is more at the meat of these stories than the color of one's hair. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. She's with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, it's just getting juicier and juicier, Scott, every time we talk. Ain't it, though? And I talked about this, and I'm sure I've talked about it. I'm sure I've talked about it this with you for a while uh, or a while ago. I know I've talked about it with others. I have seen a definite shift in CTV news, and I watch all of them because it's my job. And I believe in certain situations, CTV has gone more left than CBC. I think CBC is more a neutral figure at times than what CTV is. Uh, and there's lots of examples of that. Uh, Patrick Brown may be one of them. Uh, then, of course, a uh, Harry employee of 35 years gets fired and immediately it's because we know nothing about all of these other issues what does this add to the story boy oh boy just when you think a bad day or can't get any worse scott this is really something else so this actually takes the narrative in a completely different direction which is something that you and i have talked about like what is that what is that the crux of the true narrative of what's going on at ctv and it seems that you know this is somebody capitalizing on the ills of a corporation and coming out with their own story so first of all it does take a great deal of courage to come out with your own story because you know i mean you look at it one way your family looks at it one way your your co-workers may may um support you but then you put it out there in the media and it can go any way at all as we well know so you know here we have this gentleman uh jamil Giovanni, and who's saying that he was fired because he espoused more conservative views than liberal views 
And if that's true, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that we look at this. Um, you know, there is all that federal money that uh, flows to media corporations. And I don't know if there's anything, you know, implicitly tied to getting the money and uh, which means espousing more liberal views than conservative views. I don't know. But that is certainly going to come I, I out of the spotlight. I would I would hope not, Alyssa. I mean, I, I would hope not. I mean, you know, many people accuse the C. Many people accuse the CBC of that, but uh, you know, I, I don't know if this has anything to do with funding. Does it? I don't know. I don't think so. But I think that we have to put it out there. I think that we do. And I Be, think how much know. funding? Private broadcasters don't necessarily get funding. I mean, you know, CBC does, but private broadcasters don't. Well, there is that money that comes from the federal government to media sources. Isn't there a fund there, Scott? That uh, I mean, the CBC. Well. Is- <laughs> Yeah. The point is, these are these are private organizations that have to generate their own revenue, which is why they're they're feeling the pressure that they are now. There's so many different sources of media now, and, and traditional media is suffering. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure it's about who's controlling the price strings. We're talking about CBC or CTV here, not the CBC. But that being said, um, again, it's it's about a, somebody who's not fitting a stereotype of something. Um, getting back to my original point. I really believe that CTV has made a conscious effort to go to the left. I was talking to a journalism prof earlier on in the week who made a very fascinating point, and he said uh, in his day there was never any uh, females in a newsroom. It was a tough, rough-and-tumble place, and that has changed over time. And his theory, and it's just a theory, is that you know, as we're adding more and more female uh, influence into all industries, all ways of life, this is what we're think what we're seeing. I never thought of that before. But again, as a guy who's a media been in the media for 38 years, I have seen a definite shift of this organization to the left, even more so than the CBC. And there's got to be something behind that story. Um, uh, and as well, I'm not sure the La Flamme is all about. And, and as much as we have to address ageism, sexism, stuff like hair color, I mean, that's not right. I think that's being used as a scapegoat here. Well, then, Scott, I mean, you're, you know, you're the interviewer here and I'm the person b- b- making comments. But I mean, if you think that CTV is going even further to the left than CBC, which is basically off the charts at this point, then, <laughs> you know, what do you think is driving that? There's got to be something driving that. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. With the, with the federal government. Uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe. I don't think so. I mean, we did see that interview with Lisa Laflamme where it was about uh, almost a year ago that um, where she was really grilling Prime Minister Trudeau and not letting up. And he answered the, the, the questions capably, but she she kept coming up with follow up questions. And I thought it was just a very stellar interview. So there are some watchers, uh, Scott, that say, well, you know, that's one of the reasons that uh, she was fired, mm. that she put mm. a liberal under the white hot spotlight and she should not have done that. So if that's the case, then that kind of throws out the theory that, well, you know, that they don't want any conservative viewpoints. So I, I just don't think that that was it. I really don't think that was it. If you if 
if, if I was to speculate, and that's always a dangerous thing to do, let's face it, there's a certain demographic that only tunes into the 11 p.m. news now. Okay, that is mm-hmm. uh, the, the watching the 11 p.m. news is something of a throwback. I'm in that demographic. You're in that demographic. I look forward to 10:59. I switch over to CTV <laughs> and I want to hear the you know I want to hear the music. I want to see the set, the headlines. I want and I want to watch the news. But I can tell you that people under 40 or under 35 are not as avid 11 p.m. news watchers as we are so we are we are a demographic that is older that will eventually die off and then how do you prepare for this upcoming Mm. um, uh, demographic you have them by you have it by having somebody younger having somebody that looks like them that 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 is that that looks like what Canada looks like right now so you know if you put Omar Sachedina and Lisa Laflamme side by side which I don't want to do because they're both excellent journalists but I think that there were some people at CT TV that thought we need to prepare for the future and we need to prepare for it now. And I think that that truly was the crux of the decision. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. I'm sure it's not the last chat we'll have on this. Thank you, Alyssa. Have a great long weekend. And you too. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Summertime is sort of a a dull time for politics, usually. And uh, everybody goes back to their own uh, uh, areas and uh, sees their constituents and does the barbecue circuit, per se. Uh, And it was interesting because I was was watching uh, news coverage today, which, you know, I do a lot. And the commentators were talking about how Prime Minister Trudeau was doing a lot of touring lately. And, you know, between themselves, just joked about, is there an election on the horizon? and blah, blah, blah. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau making stops in Ontario today, Halton region. Uh, The Prime Minister's office, Trudeau uh, says Trudeau will uh, meet with parents to discuss affordability. He did that earlier this morning, Uh, then attended a tree planting session with local youth where he talked about climate action, Uh, then participate in an Oakville Labor Day parade barbecue, or sorry, an Oakville Labor Day barbecue uh, in the afternoon. Earlier this week, uh, he traveled to Kitchener for a housing announcement also met with uh, Premier Doug Ford in Toronto earlier uh, this week as well to discuss health care and such, although not much was said out of that meeting. Not sure if that's good or bad. Uh, let's bring in Peter Grant, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, thanks, and you too. So your thoughts, are you surprised we're seeing the Prime Minister out and about and uh, all over the GTA uh, this week? It seems we've seen him a lot lately. Is this just the summer barbecue circuit um, uh, and he's taking it on the on the road nationally as opposed to back to his, his home riding? Why are we seeing this, do you think? Yeah, I mean, there certainly is uh, a lot of you know quiet campaigning uh, in the summers, uh, you know, as you mentioned, and I mean, Ontario counts for, you know, two and five Canadians in the GTA, you know, within an hour and a half of uh, the CN Tower, you're probably reaching almost 20% of Canadians. So, you know, there's reasons why it pays off for the Prime Minister to be there. But I suspect, you know, internally, there's also, you know, it's a government that looked at what happened in that last Ontario election, and they're seeing a Conservative Party choosing a new leader and figure that it's important to connect with, you know, the suburbs of the 905, which will no doubt be one of the core, 
you know, battlegrounds of the next federal election, even if that may be three years away. Um, but, you know, that's, those are seats that, that can move. They elected uh, Doug Ford a year ago. They re-elected Justin Trudeau. And so uh, for the Trudeau Liberals, I guess it's important to try and maybe capture some of the same uh, halo that uh, Doug Ford got in terms of people feeling a bit more economically secure, at least in terms of employment, and maybe deal with some of the downside of people questioning whether the Trudeau government has done enough to protect them from uh, inflation. Uh, so I think on those you know fronts, Trudeau has every interest to try and uh, you know nail down those voters as Trudeau liberals as opposed to potentially polyavra conservatives. Um, we all know that because, my goodness, it's been the longest campaign I can remember for a leader, but uh, conservatives holding their leadership uh, vote coming up later on this month, September 10th, I believe. How much of this has to do with that, that the attention will be put on them and uh, during this period and as they select a new leader? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think he can see that uh, Polievre is done very well in his leadership race in terms of the number of, you know, really an unheard of number of voters, uh, potential voters seem to have signed up to support him. At the same time, there's a question about, you know, whether he's too extreme or, you know, how will he play in the 905, which has tended to, I think, prefer conservative leaders who are perhaps a bit less ideological. And so I think, you know, part of it will certainly be Trudeau trying to prime those voters uh, you know, to, you know, in, in the light of a likely new conservative leader. I guess Trudeau is probably also aware that once there's a new conservative leader, people are going to be looking at the leadership of the Liberal Party and saying, can Trudeau beat that guy? And, you know, there too, there's probably people in the Liberal caucus who are saying, well, maybe it's time to, to change horses. Uh, you know, the polls are actually still pretty good for the Liberals, for a party that's been in power now uh, for seven years. You know, usually you would expect, you know, lower approval ratings, but still, I suspect there's a number of liberals saying, well, maybe it's time to change horses. And I think uh, Justin Trudeau doesn't want that to be a point of conversation. So to the extent that he can you know, continue to solidify the liberal numbers in southern Ontario, probably reduce his internal challenges to his leadership. Does this whole game change once the Conservatives do elect a new leader? Do you think there's a chance we could see a fall or even an election before Christmas? I'd say that's highly unlikely. I mean, you know, I'm often wrong about a lot of things in life, but uh, really, you know, the, the Liberals uh, have the support of the NDP on votes of confidence. Uh, so I think the real you know, way we would see uh, a fall of the government would be if in the next year or two, there's no progress on dental care and pharmacare, which were kind of core features of the NDP deciding to support the Liberals uh, in these votes. I mean, it would be very odd, I think, for Trudeau to try and, uh, you know, engineer his own loss or to go into an election at this time, because it seems like there's a lot more people who are motivated to see Trudeau get unelected um, than Trudeau supporters who are saying they really want another election. And so in, in that context, I think it would be a pretty dangerous move on his part to to engineer his own defeat. So for those reasons, I, I really don't see us in an election you know, for another year or two years, maybe even three years from now. Hmm. Uh, Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford meeting earlier this week uh, to talk about health care. Very little was said after this. What do you how do you describe the relationship? It's a fascinating relationship because it, at times it used to be quite divisive. We hear lots of divisiveness in politics, but these two are working together. How, how do you how do you characterize the relationship? Yeah, it's hard because, you know, one day they're best buds and the next they're, you know, at uh, yeah. daggers drawn a bit and then they're best buds the day after that. But 
I mean, I think they recognize that they need each other. Uh, I mean, I think uh, Doug Ford realizes that running against Justin Trudeau probably doesn't earn him that uh, you know switch liberal conservative voter in the 905. We're much more interested in seeing things get done. And so, uh, you know, and I think he also realizes that the federal government is willing to put money in a number of things uh, that may, you know, help him, uh, you know, deal with his budget here in Ontario. And I think Trudeau realizes likewise that, uh, you know, it's a lot easier to be working with Doug Ford at this point anyway than, you know, to be running against him, particularly if he wants to achieve a number of his own priorities. So, you know, on health care, uh, you know, I think this is an instance where Trudeau probably came and said there will be money coming, maybe not as much as he wants, but, you know, let's uh, try to take the temperature off this a bit. And uh, probably Ford was happy to see that the, you know, the federal government was willing to move a bit, you know, give it two more weeks and there'll no doubt be more, you know, uh, provincial griping about a lack of federal dollars. But, uh, you know, I think in a way, you know, this this was a sort of recognition that, you know, that, that both leaders think they need each other and that there's a swing liberal uh, conservative voter in, in the 905 that will be turned off, uh, you know, too much posturing uh, or too much fighting rather than, you know, dealing specifically with issues. Peter Griff with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, talking about Canadian politics as we head into a Labor Day weekend. Have a great weekend, Peter. Thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. We've talked a lot uh, in, well, pretty much uh, since this global pandemic began two and a half some years ago about the health care troubles in Canada. We were all hoping, we were all exposed, we all saw that the uh, health care system that we spend so much time bragging about is filled with holes and desperately needs some fixing. And we all talked then that we would get this done as opposed to just pushing it off in the Band-Aid solutions that we've seen for the last 5, 10, uh, 15, 20 years, 25 years or so. Um, so now we're at the point as we're moving out of a pandemic or whatever the next stage of this is, it's time to focus on this. Uh, does anybody want to touch this? I'm guessing most politicians don't, but we're at a point of no return here and something has to be done. Randall Denley is with us, author and columnist with the Ottawa Citizen and the National Post. His latest uh, opposition party should focus on the big picture to fix Ontario's broken health care system. He is with us now. Randall, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Uh, you you say that we have to fo- our politicians have to focus on the big picture. Explain. What do you mean? Well, I'm looking at a, I think a kind of perturbing situation in Ontario right now. It's got the provincial government, as you know, brought out its latest, relatively modest plan to tweak a few things in healthcare, and the, the two that have gotten attention are moving some people out of uh, alternate level care beds in hospitals into long-term care and possibly some more surgeries in private clinics. These are not big things, but the reaction from health, public health enthusiasts and opposition parties like is the end of the world. Hmm. Doug Ford is privatizing health care. He's <laughs> lining the pockets of his buddies, you know, all the usual stuff. And of course, it's a terrible blow to people who are stuck in the hospital and can't get into long-term care. They're giving them priority to get out of the hospital. How cruel is that? They're going to be dragged kicking and screaming from the hospitals, hmm. <laughs> according to the opposition parties. Yeah. Now, you know, the one wrinkle in this is that the government is saying, look, we've got to get people out of the hospitals. Because one of the reasons we're having so many problems in the hospitals is because there are 6,000 people right now in Ontario 
in hospital who don't need hospital care. Yeah. But there's no place for them to go. There's no adequate home care. They haven't gotten into long-term care. So the government's trying to get a significant number of those people into long-term care. But they're saying, look, part of that is temporarily we might not be able to get you into one of the places you would prefer to be in. But there is a spot somewhere we would like you to go there. And, you know, big picture, this is the right thing to do because it doesn't make sense to fill up thousands of hospital beds with people who don't require hospital care. This is a long-standing problem in Ontario. This isn't going to fix all of it, but it's going to help it. So to me, opposition parties should say, okay, that's a step in the right direction. Here's some more ideas we've got for things that might help. Because I don't think that ordinary people are quite as hung up on the public, private, that whole debate no. as people in politics and union politics would like to believe. People just want health care. And you know, we all use private health care all the time. If you're going out and getting some imaging done, some blood work, it's almost invariably at a private clinic. doesn't bother anybody. So what's the problem? How do you fix, Randall, how do you fix a system when there are some who refuse to change? How do you fix a system doing the same thing? Uh, how do you fix a system when some say it's not broken? Or does anybody say it's not broken? But, yeah, uh, you know, either way, they don't want change. Of, of people, you know, the, uh, the provincial government's line now is, you know, the, the status quo isn't working. Mm-hmm. Very difficult to argue that the status quo is working. Yeah. Supposedly, even Justin Trudeau has agreed to that, although we got Doug Ford's word on it. Justin Trudeau didn't have too much to say. It, it isn't working, and the people who feel that it's, it's all perfectly fine, they're only supposed to say, well, we just need way more of everything. Way yeah. more of everything. Ignoring the fact that you know, Canada generally spends a fairly high amount of money per capita on health care and typically gets less service for the money we spend than pretty much any other G7 or advanced Western nation we would compare it to. So we're not, you know, the envy of the world, as we, we like to say, our, our system is the envy of the world. Yeah. Well, it, it's far from that, and we know in Ontario that you just can't rely on it. Now, we're at a crisis point. Things have to be done, and the government is doing, I think, correct medium and long-term things. They're expanding training for doctors and nurses. They're building more hospitals. They're building a lot of long-term care beds. These are all the right things to do. They should have been done 10 years ago. But it would take years for these things to come to fruition, yeah. and that's that's a real problem. But to me, step one is we've got to open up our minds a little bit and say, what can be done? You know, let me give you an example. They're not saying too much, the provincial government, about this uh, private surgery clinic. Well, what's that going to be? Well, maybe cataracts. Mm-hmm. They're already doing that. They've been doing it for yeah. quite some time. Yeah. But one of the things we don't talk about much in Ontario is, for example, orthopedic surgery, knees and hips. Yeah. Guys who, men and women, doctors who perform this kind of surgery typically can't get nearly the number of operating room hours they would like to have. So we've got a lot of unused capacity in the system. Now, if you said to a group of six or ten doctors, look, what would you think about setting up a clinic hiring your own staff, and we'll give you a steady flow of people, as many as you can handle, at yeah. all hip rates. Why, why I'll put it down to things like, 
well, we're building a new hospital, and in 10 years it'll be constructed, and then there'll be more capacity. Why not break it down into smaller bite-sized pieces where those, you know, eight or ten doctors can say, yeah, we know what we need for staffing. Uh, you probably know some nurses. Let's get some nurses over here. We'll make it happen. That's the kind of thing the government should be actively engaging, but just sort of alluding to it. It sets off all the, uh, you know, the predictable nonsense we've been hearing for years that, A, the government's going to privatize health care, which it never is, and B, that would be a complete disaster. Oh, look at the Americans. You know, we, we refuse to look at what other countries in other parts of the world do, even though it's well-documented. The people who don't want to change anything generally because it benefits them to say, oh, look at the Americans. Yeah. All the argument yeah. they've needed for decades. Yeah. It's about time we started to think a little more open-mindedly, in my opinion. Uh, what do you think of the meeting between Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau on health care? And then when they exited, there was very little said. Is that good or bad? <laughs> well, I wouldn't say it was good. It's uh, Ontario and all the other provinces have been after the federal government for quite a while, as you know, to pay more for health care. It, it's not an unreasonable ask. The problems that Ontario has... It can't be fixed tomorrow with money. Yeah. Justin Trudeau said, Doc, here's a check for $10 billion. Go get it fixed. You can't get it fixed because you, you can't just you know magically make healthcare workers appear. But there should be a national strategy for healthcare worker development. So we make sure we've got enough places in colleges and universities to train the people we're going to need. We can start by stopping training of people from other countries who aren't going to practice here. Yeah, I know it brings in a big tuition dollar, but let's use all the capacity we've got to train doctors and nurses who will work in Canada. That's what we need. The federal government could get engaged with that. They could help with money. Instead, they're not really doing anything. Yeah. During the pandemic, Trudeau's line was, well, you know, we'll talk about money once the pandemic's over. I mean, maybe he thinks it's not over. He's he's going to be the last holdout on that. But when are they ever going to talk about it? And it's, it's kind of inexplicable, I think, Scott, really, because there's, other than inflation, and maybe, you know, even above inflation, the biggest concern for Canadians all across the country is health care. You're absolutely so you're right. Prime minister, and you're not yeah. too popular these days, you might put one-on-one one together and say, maybe... I should do something about healthcare. And it's interesting, Randall, because whether it's healthcare or energy or inflation, it doesn't seem to be anything that the prime minister is really willing to talk about. It's it's fine. It's funny that way. Uh, Randall Denley is with us, author, columnist for the Ottawa Citizen and National Post. The latest uh, opposition party should focus on the big picture to fix Ontario's broken healthcare system. Randall, as always, thank you for the time. Have a great weekend. Yeah, my pleasure, Rob. Thanks a lot. All right, uh, we certainly know uh, what has happened since the Russian invasion of. Ukraine and what that has meant to energy, uh, not only in Europe, but around the world as uh, Russia has weaponized uh, energy and, and uh, restricting use to other parts of uh, Europe and such. G7 finance ministers have agreed to price cap Russian oil. Meanwhile, word from the Kremlin is, is they will not sell to any nation that sets price caps. Uh, how does that all work? And let's bring in Atif Kaberzi, Professor Emeritus Economics, McMaster University. He's with us now. Atif, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. 
I am well, thank you. What exactly does this mean, Atif? How can a customer put a cap on a product? Uh, by refusing to buy at any price other than the one they set or lower. Uh, but it all depends to the extent to which the parties will abide by this. And uh, there would be other people who would uh, participate. If the large importers do not join in, uh, it's uh, going to be difficult to uh, uh, enforce. And then there is also the possibility here that the Russians will find other people to sell oil to. But uh, one thing going for them is the oil market is softening. It's softening because of the aggressive increases in interest rate that is beginning to shake up uh, the uh, growth rate of GDP. So as the economy slows down, uh, they're going to demand less oil. So there is, to some extent, uh, a softening in the oil market, and prices have really come down and expected probably to come down even further. Uh, that being said, Europe still needs energy as winter is approaching. How can they stop buying? Well, that's really going to be a major issue. I mean, the Europeans uh, seem to uh, be on board, uh, the G7 on board, but the question will be to what extent can they find the alternative sources, substitute sources. Uh, the winter comes and it's uh, a uh, really difficult winter, very cold, and uh, the chances are they would not be able to uphold this. Uh, if Europe stops bus, uh, buying Russian energy, does Russia care? As you said, do they just sell to China or somebody else? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely uh, other people who are willing to buy it, especially they are noted to have given discounts. Uh, so the chances are that Russia is not going to be able to sell its oil. Uh, it is not in the offing. It seems like Russia has been successful. It's uh, getting about $19 billion a month uh, from its oil revenue. And uh, mm. the chances so far that they will be able to sell their oil. So is this strategy going anywhere, Atif? It's symbolic and it's to some extent the attempt on the part of the G7 to put a dent, presumably, in the capacity of uh, Russia to finance its war effort in uh, Ukraine. Whether it will hold or not, um, people are excused if they are skeptical. Uh, the demand for energy is still strong and a cold winter would make it even worse. And it's coming on the heel of a situation where uh, Russia has completely stopped supplying gas through its Nord Stream 1. Atif Kabursi with us, Professor Emeritus, Economics, McMaster University, President of Econometric Research Limited, former Undersecretary of the United Nations on G7 uh, Finance Ministers agreeing to price cap Russian oil. Atif, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Ford had Buck a beer, but unless Trudeau introduces Buck a gas tank, you'll need all the luck that inflation made more expensive. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.